Welcome to Business Buzz. This is your host, Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here on another lovely Chico day. I have a real interesting guest or two today, and you're going to have a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, a lot of financial help that I usually try to give you. And I've had about three really good ideas for my little monologue here at the start of the show. I've decided on one topic because it's a little more timely. I think the other ones I'll be able to bring up later and it'll be just fine. But here's one that I wanted to bring up and remind you that my subject lately, I've been mentioning the cryptocurrency world, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Ripple, all of those things. Number one, I want to point out that since I started about a month ago, I've increased about 20%, and that's with buying more in the last week or two. So everything's up. Everything's doing well. I'm not a financial planner. I'm not giving you investment advice. I'm just telling you what I've done, and I think there's a good future there. But here's my big warning about the cryptocurrencies. I got to admit, I don't know how this is going to play out, but the recent news is as of December 10th, and by the way, it was going to be December 18th, and they moved it up. That's how crucial this is to, I'll just say, them. There is now going to be traded on the commodities futures exchanges, Bitcoin futures. Now, what the heck is that all about? Well, the only way I can really tell you much about that in a minute or two is if you've been listening to my complaining about the fact that gold and silver are traded on a paper commodity exchange and that's why the value stays so low because the big banks sell giant tons of paper, gold, and silver that they don't actually own the metal. In my opinion, this whole Bitcoin futures idea and the way they've rushed into this like it's so fast just a couple weeks ago, it was scheduled to be December 18th, and now that Bitcoin almost hit 12,000, they're panicking, I believe, and now they've moved that up to December 10th. In my opinion, this is probably a way for them to tamper the enthusiasm about Bitcoin, so at least on CNBC, when they announce that gold is 1250 an ounce, they can also say, oh, yes, and Bitcoin's down $1,000 to 9,000. It's a way they can scare people into not investing in cryptocurrencies. That's my opinion. I really don't know. I would say though, for any listeners who have a large balance in cryptocurrencies, which I don't, unfortunately, it may be a good time to take a little bit of profits off the table before this futures thing hits. Now, it also may be that this futures market hitting will cause a big increase in the price. I really can't say. But there's a chance it could go wildly up, it could go wildly down, or it could go wildly sideways. I don't know. If I had a large balance, I probably would remove about half of it before this December 10th in case the first day of Bitcoin futures trading, they decide to sell 10 billion trillion contracts of Bitcoin and knock it down to $5,000. I don't really know, but you should probably be careful. They're, they're up to something. One other quick note I just have to make. I only wanted to do one note today, but I got to give you a second note. I am awfully tired of hearing about the reason the Trump tax plan is so bad because it causes a $1 trillion deficit over the next 10 years. All I can say to that is the article that I read to the listeners of Business Buzz about a month or two ago I'll reiterate the gist of that article. I don't have it in front of me at the moment. Over the last 15 years, between the Defense Department and I believe the HUD, Housing Urban Development Department, there has been in the audited books by the GAO, the General Accounting Office, $21 trillion has gone missing in the last 15 years. So if they really wanted to recoup the $1 trillion of the Trump tax plan. And I'm not saying the Trump tax plan is good or bad. Number one, it's not law yet. Number two, there's a Senate version and a House version of which each one has some things I like. Each one has some things I don't like, but they're going to have to mix the two 
before they can actually come up with a new tax law. So I'm not going to base any of my tax findings on what's going to happen. In general, the rates look like they're going to decrease slightly for most people, but also deductions are going to be decreased. So all I'm saying is that if they really have a problem with $1 trillion over 10 years, I wish they would look for the $1.5 trillion each of the last 15 years that's been stolen. And that's the last I'm going to say about that subject. Until next time. <laughs> now, I have a guest in the studio. She's my first returning guest on Business Buzz. Her name is Judy Simmons. She's a finance and loan expert. I've known her a long time. She knows a lot about multitude of business things in the local Northern California area, but she covers quite a territory also helping people with all kinds of finance things. Judy Simmons is here today. I'm going to introduce you now. How are you, Judy? I'm good, Harold. Thanks. Well, I'm really glad you're back. Thank you for having me back. So uh, now, is there a few new things going on? You do a, Tell people exactly, you do a lot of different types of uh, loan help. So tell them what you do. Um, we do every kind of loan program that's um, imaginable, basically. But before I get on the loan uh, subject, I'd like to go back to your last comment about mortgages. Um, because as of recently, talk about Donald Trump or President Trump, he um, has made a big change in the CFPB, the, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and that directly controls the Dodd-Frank Act, which directly controls the mortgages. Oh. So the, 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 the CEO of that particular bureau has stepped down. And I do believe that he voted for one person to replace him, but also Donald Trump voted for one person to replace him. So that is totally being rearranged at this point in time. And I do have good feelings about that because I think we'll see some changes as far as your comment on all of the lost money in the last decade right. or longer since 2007 on all the mortgages. So. so so what what are the main factors that could be affected by this change? You know, I don't know because it's very stringent at this time. So it could be they're going to change some of the rules for yeah. ratios and all those things? They have started coming out with some programs that have a little bit more flexibility in debt ratios. They just increased the Butte County loan limits so that you aren't adhered to paying um, interest on a high balance loan, it went from 417000 to 453100 And there's other loan limits on commercial loans and, you know, types of things like that. So you're still under the line, the oh, guidelines. The, ju the jumbo guidelines. Yes, oh, correct. Okay. And you're getting a better interest rate. Oh. And rates have been staying down because they seem to follow, rates follow the U.S. Treasury bond. Whereas, so if you see the stocks go up, bonds go down, so you can watch that if you want to know, you know, the yeah. juggling I've roller noticed, coaster of rates. I've noticed that the bonds seem to be holding up, which means rates are staying low in the bond market. Correct, right. correct. You can always follow it that way. Right. But we do have one new program out, but I'm going to pitch this as something between being um, approved for a conventional versus a private money loan. Based on the fact that it costs more money, but it doesn't cost as much as a private loan. So the new, it's just coming out now, and we have no ratio on owner-occupied properties, which means we have no debt ratio, okay? We can take a HELOC, which is a home equity line of credit, or a second, you know, a second mortgage, or a construction loan and turn it into permanent financing with this program, too. If you're filling out a loan application with this program, you leave the income blank, and it goes for W-2 employees and self-employment, um, but it's for people that have a hard time showing income. Now, is this to buy a residence or a rental or both? Well, it's actually to buy, but it's also to, you can refinance. Oh, okay. Under this. And I would say it's, it's geared more toward the refinance because a lot of people can't refinance because of income. Right, but would this also apply to someone with rental property they need to refinance? No, the property has to be owner-occupied. Oh, okay, so this is going to mm -hmm. help homeowners mm -hmm. get those refinances mm -hmm. done. Correct. Wow. And it just came out. And what I'm going to tell you about it is, is that, it, you know, it's still, the interest rate is not as good as you would get if you had 
a good FICO. A 900 and, credit score. Yeah, 900 credit <laughs> score like you and I do, Harold. Yeah, right. um, but it's, yeah, we can combine them for that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's still an interim or a catalyst to getting you out of a place that you're in and getting you into some better position down the road because you can refinance again. Right. So, so Right. And there's not a lot of prepayment penalties usually? No, 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 yeah. no, no. Are those kind of going by the wayside, the big... Large ones or not? Not on private money. Okay, no, but I mean on these bank type loans. Yeah, you know, most of them of... I don't see prepayment penalties. Not anymore. Oh, okay. No, Good. no. But you do. You know, we have some. You know, liability as if we do a loan and the our client may not keep that loan for six months. Sometimes we have to pay back, like a commission. Right, like when you know, they say this is going to be my yeah, residence yeah. and then they don't keep it long enough. Yeah, but okay. there's so many rules now that, you know, it's pretty hard to find yourself in a position where you just sold a house across the street from the person that you thought was buying vacation property, you know. And they're renting it to 10 people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, they're Airbnb in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's the way it used to be. But now, but... I, I'm excited about the change in the CFPB, like I said, because... So do you think that's going to that's gonna make it better for most yes, people yes. borrowing? Well, I'm hopeful that we get someone in there, because they haven't de- delegated as of yet, but I hope we get someone in there that has um, some empathy towards the mortgage industry over these last years, because it went from too liberal to too strict. Right. Right, they overcorrected. Correct. Right. So we need to make some big changes in that and get some interest rates down for people that are in bad spots as a result of what happened in 2007 and 8. Right. So. That's great. I'm, I always count on you for the latest information with mortgages because you are on top of it. I try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not I also, always. I also wanted to preface that we're, we're planning on having a call-in guest that's someone that you know. And I wanted to introduce that to the audience before the call because this is going to be really interesting. I've been, I harp on certain things about what the government does and the, the way they run the business, like I was saying about the trillions of dollars missing and all those things. So it just so happens that Judy introduced me to someone who has a very interesting story. And I know this person too, even though I've never met her in person, but I want to have Judy give a little bit of a beginning to this story of Bonnie, who's going to be calling in a little while. Okay, I'll try to make this brief because I really want her to share her story with you. But the crux of it began back in Colorado, I'm going to say back in 2012, roughly. And she was hired by Otterbox. Otterbox is the uh, corporation that makes our little uh, boxes that our our cell phones can fit into so they can't break. And they basically hired her because she has a commodities broker's license. So after a year of her traveling back and forth to China and meeting with all the executive branch of her um, corporation, they all decided that they would start manufacturing, of course, their product in China to save money. So Bonnie agreed to move her entire family to China and um, work for them in an executive position over there. And um, the story goes from there, but basically what happened in the long run is is that this company was not paying tariffs and they were not paying um, export tax to the United States. So Bonnie tried to uphold her commodities broker's license and did the right thing, and I'll let her tell you how she went about it, but she came back to the United States and approached the DOJ. Right. So and we'll let her. Pick yes, up those, and those it's very interesting details. now because that's <laughs> right. been going on here for a couple of years. Right, that's going to be fun. It is. It's it's, it's so she's in, essentially a whistleblower. Right. And so we can we can kind of draw a parallel to that. What's going on today's government? We have a lot of that going on. So I just want you to hear her story, so that if you, if anyone out there hears anything that you know you might want to share with her or us, you can always call Harold's office. Yeah, because the. The whole thing about actually meeting a real whistleblower was interesting for me because I've been reading news and things about the government all these years, and then to to hear about how it actually happens in real life is really interesting. And it's not always a, well, we'll, we're going to let her fill us in on that. And this isn't a small one. This is a big one. So I hope you all stay and listen to her story. (laughs) It's very good. It's going to be good. 
We're coming up on a break real soon. She'll be calling in a little bit after our uh, next segment starts. So I'm just so glad we have another great day of Chico sunshine. Me too. Always nice. Keeps everybody in a good mood. I sat outside today and didn't even wear my hat because I wanted to I wanted to get a little vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I did. <laughs> good. That's good. All right. So stay tuned. We're going to have a real interesting guest calling. We've got Judy Simmons here. I'm going to give you her contact information later. And we'll be right back on Business Buzz. Rock House Dining and Espresso is known for their patio. Enjoy the ducks and chickens visiting the patio in their environmental, farm-fresh, lively atmosphere. Rock House is an iconic landmark in Butte County since the 1930s. Seven minutes north of the Lime Saddle Bridge, only two miles past the hardware store. Originally built in 1937, the two buildings served as restaurant and tavern, shower house, barber shop, gas station, and cafe. Live music every Saturday night in the fireside room. All natural hot spice cider, mochas, cappuccinos, caramel macchiatos, and pumpkin pies made right here from fresh pumpkins. Kent Westfield, Christian singer-songwriter, is bringing acoustic music he's putting on his current album. Call before coming by for a list of live music at 532-1889 at Rock House Dining and Espresso on Highway 70 in Yankee Hill. Praise the Lord. I'm Sharon Knotts inviting you to join me and my dad, R.G. Hardy, on The Sound of Faith, mornings at 10, here on KKXX. If you are drawn to inspirational preaching, informative in-depth teaching, and biblical perspectives to current issues under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, then Sound of Faith is perfect for you, because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 10 o'clock weekday mornings here on KKXX, Chico's Christian Radio. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA, and my guest is Judy Simmons. Judy, give us a little contact information for you. Anybody needing a home loan, a business loan, uh, how can people get in touch with you? My contact information would be the best to call my cell, and the area code is 530-521-8511. And I have a partner that works with me. Her name is Jeanette, and you can feel free to call her. She handles Bay Area and Sacramento. Her number is 916-300-8097. Do you mind if I put in a plug for how good you do for people? No, okay. go for it. <laughs> I had a client that called me. He said, Harold, I'm, at the, I'm in the lobby of U.S. Bank. I, I won't mention a particular bank. It was something like that, a large <laughs> bank. And he says, I'm going nowhere with this application for a loan to buy this rental. And I'm thinking, wait a second. This is, this is the guy I know who I'm talking to. You have lots of money. You have good income. You have a good job. No way should anybody be giving you a hassle with a with a loan. So I said, call Judy. Forget what you're doing at the bank. Call Judy. Next thing I hear is, I don't know, a few weeks later, I think I heard, might have been probably from this client, and he said, everything went great. Judy helped me out. It's a done deal. It went great. And so then I talked to you about it later, I think, and said, thanks for helping my client. But the bottom line is Judy has been able to figure solutions for people where others, especially the banks, just don't seem... Why are the big banks so inflexible? Basically, the banks have one back room, which is them, correct? When you deal with a mortgage broker... Like you. We're brokered, yes. We're brokered with, like, I'm going to say 50 different you know, entities where we try to fit the program to the client. We don't you know, just have one program. Right. So that's the difference. Right. Oh, great. Well, we have a caller on the line. Hi, caller. Hi, this is Bonnie. Oh, hi, Bonnie. This is Harold. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, great. Thanks for calling. You bet. Uh, Judy Simmons is here with me. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Miss. Hello. 
So we sort of introduced your story a little bit, but um, I, I'm going to have Judy and you talk a little bit so you can kind of tell people some of the main points of what it's like in the life of a whistleblower. And we have a lot of interesting stories we want you to relay. Don't say anything you don't feel comfortable talking about, but uh, people need to know how this works. So uh, why don't you and Judy kind of take it from there a little bit? Okay, you bet. Okay, um, Bonnie, I'll just give you a little bit of information of how I introduced you. I basically gave him a little background in where you worked and the fact that you have a broker's commodities license and you moved to China for where they were going to manufacture the otter boxes. So um, I kind of wanted your side of the story because you're the one that lives it and breathes it. So maybe you could take it from there. You bet. Um, so as a, once I had gotten over to China and started to direct and oversee the manufacturing, um, it became apparent to me that truly through, um, you know, OtterBox had just kind of skyrocketed um, within about an 18-month period of time from doing business almost out of their garage to exploding with iPhone cases um, on the very first iPhone and, um, you know, went from... Uh, you know, barely making any revenue to $50 million in their first year and and $100 million in their second. And the so, rapid so growth... How, how far along were they when you joined them? They had just had their first explosive year um, and had... Uh, they actually had been my, my company, uh, my customer, um, for almost eight years. Um, I was um, employed at a logistics company that uh, they had utilized our services um, in small package shipping... Oh, okay, so you, you knew them before they hired you. I did, Oh, yeah. okay. So they already yeah. knew you when you took the job and went to China. Exactly. Now, what did you, what did you notice happening? What, what was kind of the first alarm or, or something that you noticed with this company and what was going on? You know, again, I think um, as they were wonderful people, entrepreneurs had a great idea but because the growth had been so rapid and absolutely so unexpected, um, I think there was just a lot of um, lack of knowledge in terms of how to keep up with the growth. So we didn't even have a director of HR at the time. We didn't have um, a lot of the uh, senior positions filled with people that had years of experience in the industry to be able to then be running a $50 million company. So it was kind of like a seat-of-the-pants operation at one point? Absolutely. Uh -huh. and, you know, exciting times, fun times um, for everybody there, um, but definitely there were some knowledge gaps and, and learning on the go. Right. Now, did they actively try to recruit more people like you to help them with that, or were you kind of being carried along their roller coaster with all that, or, or were you sort of the level-headed one trying to explain things to them? I initially came over a little bit as part of the roller coaster, so they were growing so rapidly, and um, my focus at the time had been helping them with their importing and logistics, and air freight is the most expensive method that you can possibly import into the United States, and that's what they were having to use just because, again, they were um, they had exploded with orders and just couldn't keep up. And so um, you know, just to, to keep the product coming in, uh, you're constantly operating from behind and doing everything as quickly as possible. So um, when I let them, I kind of came to them more, again, from uh, the company that I, the logistics company that I was with and let them know, here's all the options, here's everything. You know, this isn't ideally the, the place you want to be operating from. And they knew that, and they said, you know, we know this is the case. We just don't even really have time to look at it. Why don't you come on board? And within 30 days, I had thought, well, this is a great opportunity, and I'm going to do just that. So I went to work for them, um, and the lady that hired me was actually the director of all of the supply chain at that time. Now, did, um, when you went to work to them, for them, did you have to go to China right away? I mean, was that a condition of you working for them, or did you work for them in the U.S. first? I worked for them in the U.S. Actually, my role truly was to uh, just be the logistics manager and oversee freight, um, both importing, exporting, and domestic operations. 
Um, oh, okay. They, so, so you were an integral person in the logistics of all the movement of these goods from China's manufacturing all around the world or mainly to the U.S.? Main, um, at that point, they were just importing here to the U.S. The company had not yet gone global um, at the time that I came on board. And my role was to report to the director of supply chain, who was at that time going over to China, working with the manufacturers directly. So, so I was staying in the United States and just um, working the logistics side, the, the freight-specific side of the business. Now, did you did you notice, and I know we're going to get into a little more detail, but did you notice anything strange while you were in the U.S. working for them, or did you start noticing something strange when you were in China working for them? Well, um, I actually, the, um, the director of all of the supply chain who had hired me abruptly left about 30 to 45 days after my coming on board, um, which came as quite a surprise to me. Um, and upon her exit, she let me know that she had seen a couple of odd things. Um, and had raised it to senior management um, without success, um, and then she was abruptly gone. So oh, okay. So she had gave you a little warning. That yeah. was a little heads up. Exactly. So, so what what was it like when you first, after you got a little heads up, and then that person brought it up to management, and then she was gone soon after that? That sounds a little fishy already, right? Exactly. Right. And, um, so and what was it What was it like when you first started noticing some things going wrong? And I think, like Judy was saying before, wasn't the major part of the problem that you noticed the lack of them being willing to pay the proper import duties? Yeah. We got um, a break I, coming up. We're going to come right back after the break and continue talking with uh, Bonnie the Whistleblower. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, Bonnie. Okay, sounds good. you go all the way to Mars for water when we have the best tasting water at Mount Shasta. It comes from our protected springs and is delivered right to your door. Great planning, Bob. Hey, where are you going with that? Those Martians are stealing my water. Guess we have some new customers. And anyone can get Mount Shasta spring water if they call us at 1-800-922-6227. Pure and simple. Naturally, the best Mount Shasta spring water. Hello, I'm Gary Crossland. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Everything in the epistles points backward to Jesus. That's why I encourage people to read the words of Jesus every day. This is where emotional and spiritual health come from. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, where do you read his commandments? But in the Gospels. Now, I know that it's easy to get a little confused when jumping between one Gospel and the next, which is why I wrote the Merged Gospels. It's where all four Gospels are literally translated from the Greek, broken down word by word, and merged back together into one beautiful chronological story with not one word of scripture removed. You can't buy it in stores. It's available only online at mergedgospels.com. It's great for new believers, for personal devotions, and for group studies. There's also an audiobook. And as always, you get to name the price. Just go to mergedgospels.com. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. He really likes to be around people. I get out my mat and I'm doing a downward dog and he's underneath. He's quite the pug about town. He gets invited to a lot of parties. He knows he's a pretty big deal. Look at this little face. I do not love him. Hamilton the Pug, Instagram star and shelter pet. Amazing adoption stories start in shelters. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, your host. I'm here with Judy Simmons in the studio. And on the phone is Bonnie, a real-life whistleblower with a real great story that we're talking about. So, Bonnie? Yes. We were, we were talking about, I was asking, what's it like inside your mind when you start realizing the company that's paying you, that hired you, that's giving you a, li a living, 
is doing something wrong? What, what does that feel like? What went through your head when you started to realize it? Did you like start investigating or did you start maybe trying to ignore it or what happened first? My first step um, was to take it to the senior management myself. Uh-huh, um, like, the, like the person who got canned had done, is that right? Right, right. So I, I did go to the uh, CEO and president of the company after having researched um, not only what the regulations were, but what the consequences, um, whether it be fines and penalties, what uh, those might be, as well as even went so far as to research, okay, every company goes into business and maybe has a misstep. So the right thing would be to research, analyze that, and through due diligence and proper disclosure, you often are provided an opportunity then to mitigate down fines and penalties that may come your way. Right, like to voluntarily come clean and say, hey, here's what we did wrong, but if you can reduce the penalties, we'll we'll do better in the future and let us give us a little bit of a break. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, and I found that um, the... Department of Customs and, and Border Protection, they're very willing to work with companies from that perspective. So I took that information, um, again, to the senior management of the company. Uh, however, they, they were blatantly um, unresponsive and, and just truly said that they felt that the government got enough of their money as it was, and um, they were not going to be transacting business properly in the future. It just was not an option. Wow. So so you actually saw the whole process of people actually knowing they were doing something wrong, but purposely not trying to correct it. Is that what you noticed? Absolutely. And, you know, and there is a sense, um, and it's funny in these political times as well, there is a sense um, within, with, with entrepreneurs, I think, and business owners, where you've got to be willing to take a risk and, and you certainly have to have a strong understanding of regulations. And, and maybe it is true. I've often heard if businesses followed every regulation that existed out there, then nobody would be able to stay in business. Right, um, right. Know, I, and I think it was from that perspective that um, this senior management team was, was coming from. Right. And uh, yeah, so they, right, they, they realize they're not going to follow every little regulation, but this one turned out to be pretty big. So when you started, when you just, what triggered you deciding that you needed to blow the whistle, so to speak? What, was there any one particular thing or was it just after you realized what you warned them about, they were ignoring I mean, what, what was it that made you say, you know what, I got to tell somebody about this? What, what, was there something in particular? Yeah, actually, um, it wasn't my intent whatsoever to, to take these steps. Um, at, after a period of about three months, um, I had started to go over to China just to, to keep the supply chain going and had um, been doing a good job enough so that I was quickly promoted then to the director of supply chain. So at that point, the responsibility for purchasing global logistics, everything fell underneath me. So now you, you received a promotion from the company after you had gone to the senior management and told them what they need to correct or what they're doing wrong with these uh, import taxes? Actually, I received the promotion um, and afterwards, came to them with this, it was brushed, um, you know, they let me know that they did not want to um, transact business that way, and I conceded at that moment, took the time to kind of take a step back, and because I knew I'd be leaving to China shortly, that gave me an opportunity to handle things differently. Now as the director of supply chain and the person responsible for all of this, although I knew what direction senior management wanted to go. I also had the authority to just make the changes necessary to bring the company into compliance. Oh, so you, so this promotion enabled you to actually know that you could actually make these changes. Correct. Wow. So did you implement those? That's exactly what I started to do. Uh Aha. Yeah. And it was, um, and it was at that time, 
time than uh, since I had gone over to, to China and relocated and was focusing on the China manufacturing and, and creating the shipments on the front end. Um, I altered the documentation such that brought us into compliance and our importation at that time um, was not going to be an issue. And I felt this was um, a necessary step for a couple of reasons. One is the licensed broker and the director at that time. Um, I am responsible, and as a licensed customs broker, uh, you you are bonded through the government, and you right. If if you do if you do something wrong negligently or on purpose, you would lose your right your license to earn a livelihood. That's exactly right, and right. really, you can even found criminal um, be found um, criminal criminally liable and face jail time on your own if you continued, um, like you said, doing transactions with with such an right. So while you're, so now you're at the point where you got the promotion, you're able to actually do things properly. Were you were you told by the management to stop doing it that way? Um, I I was not um, ever asked not to transact business that way. Uh, however, within 30 days of making such necessary changes, um, the company abruptly decided that it was um, time to part ways. Right. So they canned you, is that right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. So when you lost your job, you had, uh, first of all, you had a couple of, cho- what choices did you have at that point when you felt that you were like wrongly terminated and all that? What led you to end up, you ended up at like the Department of Justice, is that correct? Right. And how I, um, I, I again, it was never really my intent to be a, a whistleblower. Uh, I came back to the United States and I participate in a um, customs brokerage group that is just a professional development group. Um, and upon hearing my story, other folks who had been in similar situations um, counseled me a little bit on where my risk might be. Um, and and encouraged me. There is an anonymous um, hotline where someone can put some um, something in anonymously to customs um, that would alert them. And that's the route I chose to do. I actually did did not want to actively at that time participate or um, or right. You just wanted to anonymously report what had been going on. Right, and I did that. For two reasons. Um, again, I knew what liability I had, but at the same time, the company itself had grown so large. And prior um, to my being terminated, I, we were all aware as senior management um, that the IRS was going to be doing a very thorough audit of our books that, that year, mostly because we had gone from you know, almost $200,000 in revenue to $50 million in revenue and now $100 million in revenue. Was this, was this a publicly traded company? It was privately owned. Privately owned, okay. Mm-hmm. So, and so it, you... it, I knew that through that IRS audit and through discovery, um, this, this situation would um, come forward, and it was important for me to protect myself, um, since all of this really happened over about a six-month period of time, to just make sure that everything was documented in a way that um, did protect myself right. and my so, own license. So when you did the anonymous reporting, mm-hmm. what was the next step after that? Did they then contact you and say, we need more information or something? Yeah, they, they did reach out, and at that point you have an opportunity. If, you, if, um, if Customs looks at the information and they decide to move forward without you, that is certainly an, an option that you have, um, or you can help them and uh, be part of, of that case. Right. And now, at the start of that, did, did you then look into the fact of what you could possibly receive as a whistleblower f- uh, percentage or something? Was that something that crossed your mind at the stage of, that we're at here? Uh, you know, there were, there were two avenues that I could take. Um, and from my own legal perspective, uh, I was counseled that I could go down the path of a wrongful termination suit. Right. Um, and and, and I, that was originally the route that I was headed um, until Customs had reached out, and then I was counseled by the, the same attorneys that it would I had to choose between one or the other, which so now, route did I want to take. Right, and was that Department of Justice people that told you you had to do one or the other and you couldn't do both? 
No, that was actually my my own attorney. Your the, own attorney, the okay. Termination attorney. Okay. Now, did you do you think since have you found out that that was incorrect or it's correct? I can't say that I've really followed up to find out whether that is um, wh- which one is factual. I'm, right. I'm not sure. Right. It's it's it, but but the bottom line is you ended up pursuing the whistleblower route mm-hmm. rather than the uh, wrongful termination lawsuit route. Is that correct? correct. Yep. So uh, we're going to come up on another break here, but when we come back, I definitely want to hear a lot more about how it how it all panned out when the whistleblower process started, because to me it's fascinating. And we're also going to touch on sort of the results of that and how how they told you certain things that didn't always come true, but it's very entertaining and interesting, and I really appreciate you sharing all these uh, personal stories with us because, I mean, this is really a... a a very serious subject, and I'm really glad that you have the chance to share that with us here today. All right. I look forward to it. Thank yeah. you. When this break comes, we're going to come back right after that and talk a little bit more about all that. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, and I'm here with Judy Simmons, the world's best loan broker that I've ever met, and I, <laughs> I've i met a few. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have, Harold. Oh, yeah. But um, we'll be right back after this break. Stay tuned for more Business Buzz. Was the Ice Age. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our full-size Noah's Ark attraction in Kentucky. Yesterday we learned that there was only one Ice Age in Earth's history and it was caused by the effects of the flood of Noah's Day. Now this flood occurred over 4,300 years ago. There's some disagreement among creationist researchers about exactly when the Ice Age began after the flood and how long it lasted, but we know it was relatively soon after the flood and lasted only a few hundred years. Interestingly, Job, who lived before the time of Abraham, often mentions snow, ice and hail in his book. This isn't weather he would normally see based on his location. Perhaps Job was describing the Ice Age. You see, we need to start with God's Word. You can discover more about the Ice Age inside our full-size Noah's Ark. Plan your visit to Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com and find out more about the Ice Age at AnswersRadio.com. It's 6.42 p.m. Time for Steve Plato and his son Dylan to do the dishes. They talk about everything from the yuckiness of girls to the awesomeness of his soccer team. Sometimes they don't talk at all. Then, hey, the dreaded <laughs> splash fight. It's dad o'clock. And it's the best time of the day. Because the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Bonnie, I did want to bring up one more thing that Judy mentioned during the break. Tell us a little bit about the fact that you were requested, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the CEO at one point requested you to hand them over your laptop? That is correct. Um, while I had relocated to China, um, again, with the, after about 30 days of implementing the changes, um, and apparently uh, the company back in the U.S. finding out about that, they dispatched a person um, to China who arrived out of the blue um, unannounced to uh, request my laptop and, and let me know that I'd be terminated effective immediately. Right. And so when, when that happened now, had you backed it up yourself before you turned it in? How did, how did, you, get, how did you get the laptop back to them without losing all of this evidence that you had on the laptop. I can tell you that any good licensed customs broker um, 
documents, documents, documents. So, yes. Um, you back up I, and back up twice, right? I'm a phenomenal record keeper. <laughs> right. Okay. So you had backup. And so when you eventually did return it, which is probably, was it their prop? Was it a company laptop? Yes. So it was their property, but you actually had all the backup on a drive of your own, right? Correct. Wow. So now I want to, we've, we've got about, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 12 minutes more of time here, but I want to get into some things about when you're a whistleblower, what do you feel is the, the government side is looking to get a bunch of money and you're going to end up getting a share if you get that. But what's your feeling about the government people that were working on this? Were they like, you know, Elliot Ness, the good guy at the FBI, or were they more like James Comey, the, the guy at the FBI? I mean, or, or Mueller. Who, who, what were these people like? Well, the, um, the appoint, employment attorney that I had worked with, um, in turn, put me in connection with um, an attorney that focused on then what is called the Ketam lawsuit, um, which is what this would have been. And then that attorney worked hand-in-hand -hand with the Department of Justice I actually only ended up having to meet with the Department of Justice um, one time at their offices, and they were they were phenomenal, um, and that was purely discovery on their end um, to receive information. Okay, so can, do you, so the ones that you did meet at the Department of Justice, you felt like they were on your side? Absolutely, and I really um, I, I don't know that they were necessarily even on on anyone's side as much as they were just on the on the side of of what was of fairness and, what was and, right and seeing proper. what happened. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, but probably by the time you met with them, they had enough info that they probably knew they were going to win a bunch of money from this company. I mean, would that Absolutely. have been the case? They they definitely counsel you that um, the, because these cases can be so difficult um, and challenging to prosecute that they really only decide to move forward in, in a small number of these cases um, where they know that they're they're really going to have some opportunity. Right, where it's like a slam dunk, and you probably presented it with enough direct evidence because you were in charge of that whole thing. Correct. That, that you, yeah, so so they knew they were going to get some money. Now, I don't know, we don't, I don't think we really need to discuss the dollar amounts, but it was in the millions of dollars that this company ended up paying what tell me what do you what do you think the company really owed versus what they really ended up paying? Do you really know that? Well, um, you know, in the I can say that the estimate was roughly that um, at the time that there was discovery of wrongdoing, it and to when the lawsuit came into play, it would have been about twelve to fifteen million dollars. Now, as the case was proceeding, and it ended up taking two or three years to go through. The court system. Um, the company at that point did try on three different occasions to then um, disclose, if you will, their wrongdoing and mitigate down. Um, and each time, their failure to be fully uh, honest with their disclosures was ultimately what ended up in my lawsuit um, prevailing and coming to a close after after the three years. Right, so they en they ended up paying a lot less than the twelve to fifteen million that was probably what people thought it should have been right. if it was in full. Right, I think they ended up paying at the end about six million dollars. Um, which, crazy enough, though, had they really just taken the advice of um, that I had given them from the get go uh, and just disclosed from the beginning, I think they would have actually been able to mitigate down to almost about two hundred thousand dollars. So um, all of that hassle. Right, all the all the crooked stuff they did ended up. I mean, I say crooked, even though I don't know these people. But uh, obviously, if they paid a giant settlement, they must have done something wrong. So they, if they had have just followed the law, it would have been a lot better, and they wouldn't have had that problem. Now, since this has all happened, what's happened? What's happened to you? You're still a licensed broker because you did what was right. Yeah, thank you. But, but have have yeah. you been? Uh, have you had problems with you getting a new job, you job hunting now? I can say that um, in the state that I live in, it's, it's um, a fairly small community. Is that, um, That's Colorado, right? Correct, of, of business leaders. And it was a challenge. Um, I'm in a good place now, but it certainly was a challenge for a couple of years. The other thing that um, I guess I would, I would say to people is that um, the, the attorneys that I work with, everything, um, I think the proper term is um, pro bono. So um, attorneys actually ended up 
um, taking the, the majority of anything that... Um, so financially, it's not as if, um, I guess unless you did have some monstrous um, lawsuit, it, it truly ended up not being such a financial windfall. Like I can't go and retire. You know, I'm, I work a regular job like everybody else. But those were some of the challenges coming out of it is that um, I can definitely say that the only advice I received whatsoever was seek a tax attorney when you go to file your taxes. Right, right. And, and, and that was a, a huge challenge because um, nobody understood the tax implications of receiving any monies of, of any amount. Um, that led me then down to the Colorado Department um, of the IRS, and I met with them where I received actually false um, and inaccurate information. They let me know what the tax... Um, right, they, they told you good tax news, sort of, right? And it turned right. out to be completely wrong. Yeah, they were about 49% um, off. Right, right. They were they, they, they told you 1% and it was about 50. Correct. <laughs> no, I don't mean to laugh at that. It's a very serious subject. One thing I do want to point out to listeners about that is that it's a known fact, just like with any other contract, anything the IRS tells you verbally is absolutely meaningless later. <laughs> if it isn't in writing, you cannot rely on it and they can't know everything and so, but it's really unfortunate that someone who went through what you went through, I mean, at some point, did you ever like feel that you might even be in danger? I mean, was that a feeling when you were still in China during the start of this trouble you had to go through? Not while I was in China. However, um, after I came back to the States and I, I uh, was employed with a new employer and the beginnings of this lawsuit took place, um, there were several articles that were written. My attorneys let me know that um, I might be confronted outside my home or outside my new employer um, from reporters asking questions. And, and certainly that first year of the lawsuit, um, the company obviously does, um, is, is, a, is one of the business leaders here in Colorado, and so therefore um, they have a lot of support. And there was not much uh, for somebody then who had quote-unquote wronged um, the company. Right, uh, right. But now, did you, during your time after this, when you were looking for new new work and new employment, did you ever feel like you were blackballed because of this whole thing? I did. In fact, um, the prior, or the company um, that was involved actually wrote on their own letterhead um, a letter to a competitor um, letting them know that if they hired me, even though I did not have a non-compete, that, that they would... Uh, take action. Oh, okay. So, it, so they scared somebody off from hiring you with a with a, a falsehood. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, the this company is still are they still a large player in the uh, cell phone case? Absolutely. World? I think now their their annual sales um, are up around 350 to 400 million. Wow, so they've gotten even bigger. Do you believe that they are now probably being watched a lot closer by customs and that they must be doing things correctly or that there's no way they could not be? I guess I don't I wouldn't have any insight on that, but um I would assume having gone through an IRS audit and a lawsuit that um they've Right, they that they've they've got to be the on the right radar, people. right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but but yeah. in in the big picture here is there a certain percentage? See, I'm not. I don't do a lot of international tax work. If I do get somebody like that, if I'm not an expert in a field, I pass them on and refer them to somebody who is. What what percentage are we talking about? Let's say a company has just say a hundred million to make it round in imports from China to the U.S. and its plastic cell phone cases. What percentage of duties are we talking about here? You know, that was recently, um, it was changed in the last year and a half. So, um, I mean, just at a round number. Assessed, yeah, Customs originally assessed a 20% duty, um, and then they decided to take a second look at that um, after a lot of litigation about a year and a half ago, and I believe that the import duty rate was reduced to 5%. I might be 1% off there, but... Um, wow, so it's gone from 20 to 5 Correct. Well, you know, before the income tax law, that was the main revenue of the federal government was like import taxes. Right. It's serious. Well, you know, I'm thinking, so if it's 20% and what, that's just a few years ago, it was 20%. Mm -hmm. 
that means that that's a whole nother level of discussion for how, and I'll just say it, how cheap Chinese labor has to be. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, a cell phone case, um, even at the, at the best quality cell phone cases, can be made in China, and, and including transportation, import duty, um, arrive here to the U.S. for for about five or five dollars and fifty cents, and then they they will resell in the store for for fifty to to sixty dollars for the high end ones. Now, is is the let's say it's five percent? Is that five percent on gross imports in retail value? Is that how that goes, or is no, it no? It's off cost? the purchase price. Okay the the purchase price of the not the future retail price. Correct. It's the it's the, the purchase price. Like the um, cost of the item that got made. Correct. Okay. So that's still, yeah, that adds a large chunk. So that, that makes it even worse. I just remembered, I saw an article today about, it was about Walmart. Uh, I don't know. It was something about Walmart overbilling people at the register, and I'm not sure it was true or not. But what I do remember is the the whole thing where, I don't know, this this whole import thing is just kind of crazy because our whole economy now depends on it because we have no manufacturing here. Right. But I would imagine, does Colorado have a high minimum wage? Like, I mean, I don't, I won't say it's high or low, but California is $10 anywhere and some cities are even higher. Does Colorado yeah, have a high one like that? Yes, ours is $10 as well. Oh, okay. So if you think about it, I guess a factory making cell phone cases in Colorado or California is not going to be able to compete with the Chinese factory? Uh, not at large volumes. What's interesting, though, and I, I think this will be interesting to watch in the future, um, you mentioned how we really don't have any manufacturing here in the U.S. What used to make um, products like this so cheap is the high volume. So you talk about a Walmart, a Target, or any of these stores that are doing high volume um, you can get them made overseas inexpensively uh, because a single machine might be able to make 100,000 or 250,000 units until that machine's no good anymore. And so, therefore, that run rate, you get a very low piece price. Right. What's interesting, though, with where we see our economy going is so many more people are uh, buying now through Amazon or online stores where these stores don't want to keep inventory they're not importing container after container of inventory and having it sit here. They are waiting until they have orders and they're direct shipping from China, which means they're ordering one, two, three, or much smaller quantities. Oh, so that might turn that might turn the the teeter totter a little bit towards uh, U.S. manufacturing. I really, um, my prediction is that I I do think we will have to start to see an increase in U.S. manufacturing um, in order to support. Um, an e-commerce type of industry um, for those reasons. And secondly, transportation costs um, are just skyrocketing, whether it be um, ocean freight or air freight. You're starting to see the costs go through the roof. Right. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for being our guest. That was great. Judy, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. I'll talk to you next time on Business Buzz. Thanks, Bonnie. And everybody have a great day. Harold Littlejohn, CPA, signing off. We'll talk to you next time on Business Buzz. KKXX Paradise K280GL Chico and K283AR Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Scott Ulrich. I'm Ben Taney. I'm Trisha Coder. And I'm Matt Four. This is Jessica Wilkerson, one of your hosts of Chico Now. A half hour designed for the community and brought to you by the community. Each day, one of our hosts will join with people from organizations throughout the greater Chico area. We want to let you know what's happening in Chico Now. So join us at 1230 Monday through Friday here on KKXX for Chico Now. Protection Plus says the right to bear arms.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. Rock House Dining and Espresso is known for their patio. Enjoy the ducks and chickens visiting the patio in their environmental, farm-fresh, lively atmosphere. Rock House is an iconic landmark in Butte County since the 1930s. Seven minutes north of the Lime Saddle Bridge, only two miles past the hardware store. Originally built in 1937, the two buildings served as restaurant and tavern, shower house, barber shop, gas station, and cafe. Live music every Saturday night in the fireside room. All natural hot spice cider, mochas, cappuccinos, caramel macchiatos, and pumpkin pies made right here from fresh pumpkins. Kent Westfield, Christian singer-songwriter, is bringing acoustic music he's putting on his current album. Call before coming by for a list of live music at 